Well, the, <clears throat> excuse me. There's been a melee of materialism that's swirled around this holiday season like other seasons. Maybe some of you saw the news clips of the people lined up hours in advance to get the new shoes, the Nike Air Jordan 11s. Maybe you saw those clips when they finally opened the doors and the people crowded into the department stores, literally ripping the doors off the hinges. There were instances of people pulling out pepper spray and spraying others and even gunshots being fired as people literally trampled one another to get a pair of these shoes. But today, on Christmas Day, we gather together to exalt the one true God. We gather together not to worship materialism. We gather not to exalt material things, but to worship the one true God. And I'm pleased that we are here together today to do this. Consider, a wise man will carefully plot out the journey of a lifetime, will he not? He will meticulously contemplate his goals. He will thoroughly calculate the cost. He will religiously consider his resources. He will keep his desired outcome firmly in view, and he will travel every stage of this journey with rock-solid, resolute purpose until sitting down in triumph at the journey's end. Today, we celebrate the birth of a baby boy. The child Jesus, lowly born in dusty stable, humbly laid in manger there. But unlike some who see this birth as the beginning and the end of Christmas, I pray that we see the whole picture. We see Jesus' birth as a stage of this journey. It is a glorious stage. It is a miraculous stage. It is an indispensable stage of the journey, but it is a stage of this journey. So if this journey didn't begin in the manger, then where did it begin? It began not in the hollow of the stable, but it began in the halls of eternity. It began as a plan in the mind of the all-wise God. It was a plan that then sprang forth into a covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A covenant that was purposely designed for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God. And then, for the secondary purpose of securing a people, a bride for the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, before the foundation of the world, God planned. And you know what? For God to plan is to act. And for God to act is to accomplish. And today then, we, the privileged children of the all-wise God, have the honor and privilege of contemplating the journey of a lifetime. The journey of Christ from eternity 
to the throne. And this journey, Christ's journey, has major, major implications for all of our journeys. It has major implications all the way from the sovereignty of God in our everyday lives to our crowning in glory at the journey's end. So let's consider together Christ's journey from eternity to the throne. As we consider it, we will witness several stages in this journey. We will witness the covenant of redemption, the baby in the cradle, the commitment of the child Jesus, the crucifixion of the Christ, and then the crowning of the King. In the sinless harmony of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ratified a redemptive covenant. The world would be created in light, and then it would plunge into darkness. The Father would then send the Son in the form of His creatures, who would redeem the corrupted creation, including a group of people called the elect. And the Holy Spirit would regenerate and then seal those elect by His miraculous power. They all pledged themselves in eternity to do this. Now fast forward with me to a day in the first century A.D. This day was unlike the day in the past when he cowered and cursed For Peter stood boldly on this day and he proclaimed from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Notice this. God was determined that the Christ would die. It was his purpose. He planned in advance. Notice what Peter said. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God had planned in advance for Christ to journey from eternity to the throne. There are other passages of Scripture which clearly teach us that the cross was not an absolute thought in the mind of God, but planned out from the beginning. Luke chapter 22, verse 22 says... Jesus speaking, truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Notice this, as it has been determined. We call that the, the divine passive voice in the scriptures. It says, as it has been determined. Who was it determined by? By the divine God himself. 
In Acts 4, verse 28, it is proclaimed that the people who crucified Christ were to do whatever, speaking of God, your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And then in 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He was foreordained before the foundation of the world that was manifest in these last times for you. And then Acts 3.18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So God covenanted in eternity. And he prophesied many things that would take place in Christ's journey from eternity to the throne. Here's but a partial list of prophecies that Christ fulfilled. It was prophesied that he would be of the lineage of Abraham, of the lineage of Judah, of the lineage of David, that he would be born of a virgin, that his birthplace would be in Bethlehem, that there would be a forerunner, John the Baptist, that he would be the prophet, the priest, and the king, that he would bear the sins of the world, that he would be ridiculed, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that not one of his bones would be broken, that soldiers would gamble for his clothing, that he would cry out from the cross, that he would be disfigured, that he would be scourged and die, that he would rise from the dead, and that he would ascend into glory. If ever there was a life that was predestined from start to finish, it was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just think of all of the details that God had to perfectly control to make just one of these prophecies come true. You know, I've heard it said that God only controls the outcomes, but He doesn't control the events that lead up to those outcomes. That He only controls the end, not the means to the end. But consider something with me for just a moment. Every means is an end of a previous means. What do I mean by that? Every outcome is the result of an event, and every event then is the outcome of a previous event. Now, what would this look like if I give a mundane illustration? What if I decide to take a journey to Walmart? That's something that's likely to happen, right? And as a result of that decision, I then walk to my closet, stop at the closet, reach out my hand, and get my coat. Every event in that sequence is the outcome of a previous event. This is how this would work. Walking to the closet is the outcome of my decision to wear a coat. Stopping at the closet is the outcome of my walking. Reaching out my hand is the outcome of my stopping at the closet. And grabbing my coat is the outcome of my reaching out my hand, and I haven't even made it to the car yet. So you see what I'm saying? Every event is an outcome. So if God is in charge of and controls the outcomes, He therefore must control the events or 
miraculously zap the outcomes into being. Right? Does that make sense? Well, we can see then that every event since the creation event is an outcome of a previous event. So for God to make any one of these prophecies come true had to control multiple events surrounding that prophecy, not just the outcome. But what if the people who say God only controls the outcomes mean that God only controls the big events? Consider for just a moment, with just one of these prophecies, how many little events had to take place perfectly for the big event, the fulfillment of the prophecy, to take place. Let's consider the big events in the journey of Christ from eternity to the throne, namely, that the Messiah would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Oh, we could consider thousands, probably even millions of things. We could devote our entire lives to looking at what God had to control to make this one prophecy come true. But let's just look at a few things. First of all, the prophecy itself. From Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, get this, 700 years before it happened. That's a long time. 700 years. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. There's the prophecy. Now, the fulfillment we find in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And then we see that this child, Jesus, was born there in Bethlehem at that time. Now consider with me just a few things that God had to control to see that this prophecy be fulfilled in exactly this way. First of all, he had to control the timing of the birth, right? There was a time frame of just a few days when Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem. You notice they didn't live in Bethlehem. They're traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So there's just a time frame there, a window of a few days in which Mary had to have the child Jesus. Now think of all the things that can affect the delivery of a child. God had to control the nutrition of the mother. He had to control the safety of the mother. He had to control numerous, numerous things to see that Jesus was born at exactly the time when Mary and Joseph were in that town Bethlehem in that window of just a couple of days. 
How many things out there are there that can cause a woman to give birth prematurely or postmaturely? Many indeed. But God had to control it all perfectly. Her nutrition, her health, her safety, so that it would come to place exactly at that time. Consider also then that they had to travel from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. God had to pick a virgin, that's another prophecy, betrothed to a man who was of the lineage of David and lived or would travel to Bethlehem at the exact time that Jesus was born. And consider this for just a moment. Since Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth and they didn't live in Bethlehem, there had to be a compelling reason for a man to load his wife into a cart or hoist her onto a donkey when she's nine months pregnant and go a one-way trip three or four days to a different city. There had to be a compelling reason for a man to do that. I uh, met David Chapman. Some of you know him and that his wife is expecting. Met him at Walmart's Friday, and he told me that Mrs. Chapman is due actually today, Christmas Day. So, what was taking place here with this travel would be kind of like David looking at his wife yesterday and saying, Honey, let's hop in the car and head up to northern Alberta, Canada. <laughs> there would have to be a compelling reason to get them to travel that far away from home under those circumstances, Right? Well, there was a compelling reason. But think about this, though. That example that I just gave of Mr. Chapman, that's jump in the car and let's head up to Alberta, Canada, and there are hospitals along the way. But for Mary and Joseph, it would have been, honey, hop on a donkey and let's bounce our way to Bethlehem. And it's going to take us three or four days to get there one way. And there were hospitals along the way like there are today. So there had to be a compelling reason, right? What was the reason? Only the decree of an emperor. <laughs> Caesar Augustus decreed that the whole world would be taxed. And that's about what it would take. The decree of an emperor to get a sensible man to take his wife on a three or four day journey into a different place right when she's due. But think about this. Caesar Augustus had to decree that the entire Roman Empire would be taxed at exactly this time. God had to control the most powerful man in the most powerful empire on earth to see that he would issue this census at exactly this time and require the people go back to their hometown to register. If the timing was off just a few days, if anything had befallen Caesar at any time in his life that would have in any way affected his being in charge at exactly that time and making that decree precisely when he did, then God's plan would have failed. So, God had to control viruses and bacteria and enemies and earthquakes and horses and houses. He had to control anything that Caesar saw, tasted, touched, smelled, heard, or that saw, tasted, touched, smelled, or heard him which would have led him to either change his mind or not be able to make this decree at exactly that time for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And that's only just a couple of things in the equation. 
Think about this. There had to be a Bethlehem for the prophecy to take place, right? Answer me this. Have cities ever faded out of existence? Think about Pompeii. Vesuvius. Boom! The city is gone. And it disappears out of existence for hundreds of years. Think about ghost towns. Towns that spring up and boom, they're gone. And no one lives there anymore. What about this? Have cities ever changed their name? It still had to be called Bethlehem at the time. It had to be that city. It had to be protected by God for over 700 years since that prophecy had taken place. So God had to control, he had to control earthquakes and elements. He had to control armies. He had to control magistrates. He had to control diseases. He had to control all of these things to protect this little town so that the prophecy could be fulfilled. And you know what? We could spend the next few weeks brainstorming on what God had to control to see that just one of these prophecies was fulfilled. And consider this for a moment, my friends. This same all-wise God who wisely planned and powerfully worked before and during Jesus' ministry has wisely planned and is powerfully working in your journey. And we are called to trust to His wisdom and to His timing as we walk on this journey that we call life. So God had perfectly executed the plan from eternity. And there now lies the little baby Jesus in the manger. Think about that for a moment. The God who has the power to make the universe dance has become a man and is lying hands and feet wrapped tightly so that he cannot move in a feed trough. As a part of the covenant and plan, the Son became a man. And this, the scriptures teach us, was absolutely necessary for God to save men. God had to become one of us to save any of us. Look over at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Did you notice that? He had to be made like his brethren to accomplish this. You see, here's the, here are the facts. God has to play by the rules. But don't misunderstand me. It's not the rules of others that God is bound to. God is bound to his own nature and character to be absolutely faithful. And God's faithfulness to himself is put on display here in the journey from eternity to the throne when the Son became a man. God's impeccable righteousness demanded that there be a perfectly sinless substitute for anyone to be saved. And Christ became a man. And the God-man died to take the punishment on himself so that the elect then will be welcomed into glory at the end of their journeys. And what a glorious truth this is, isn't it? That our Savior became a man and that He first became a baby, that He was totally dependent, that He was sinless, yes, but absolutely human. You've probably heard me say it before, but for Him away in the manger when it says no crying He makes, that totally misses it. The incarnation was messy. And what a glorious truth that is because we are messed up people in a messed up world. Jesus, when he was born, burst forth from the womb, no doubt crying, like any baby would. Jesus had to be changed. He had to be birthed. He had to be fed. He was totally helpless as a little baby and had to be totally looked after. You see, our God became one of us. And what hope this gives us on our journeys. Any of you start out as a baby? We all start out totally helpless and dependent. But then you know what? Many of us, if not most of us, will reach a place where we are totally helpless and dependent once again. Either physically, mentally, or emotionally. And this is a very tough place to be. I've seen grown men burst into tears with their bodies shaking with sobs, saying, it used to be that whenever I wanted to do something, I would just get up and do it for myself. But now I can't do it. But do you see what hope this gives us human beings? That our God became a man? That our God willingly placed himself in a position of total dependence for a time? It's because of that that we then can be saved so that we enter into glory at the end of this journey that we call life. What hope that gives us on the journey. And there was the baby in the manger with his arms wrapped tightly to his sides. 
that this baby would grow, would become stronger, more independent, but then he, as a man, would willingly place himself in another position of absolute dependence and immobility when he spread his arms wide on the cross. And it's because he chose to do that that we that we have hope when this life threatens to bear us down. We can have hope then when our worlds fall apart in the sense of us not being able to look after ourselves any longer. Christ gives us this hope. Because this journey is not all there is. Glory awaits us at the end of the journey. So the stage is there. The covenant of redemption in eternity. The baby in the cradle. And then the commitment of a child, the 12-year-old baby Jesus. Consider Luke chapter 2. And the account there that's in verses 41 through 52. Mary and Joseph every year went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they took Jesus with them. And Jesus is 12 years old at this time. While they celebrated the feast, they headed out back home. They were a day out. And they looked around and no Jesus. So, they inquired. Nobody else had seen Jesus. So they headed back. Where did they find him? They found him in the temple. What was he doing? He was there speaking with, questioning, and even providing answers to the leaders there in the temple. What did Jesus say when he was asked by his mother, What are you doing? Look at verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Did you keep your New Year's resolution from last year? If you say, well, yep, I sure did. What about all the previous years you made New Year's resolutions? Did you keep all those? The reality is that we fail in our commitments, don't we? Are there any of you here who have never failed in any commitment that you have ever made? We fail in our commitments. But Christ failed not in a single commitment or a single second on His journey He failed not. And because of his unswerving faithfulness, we are counted faithful by God even when we fail. Christ's extreme devotion to his Father here is the focal point of this only glimpse that we have into the boyhood of Jesus. And that's exactly what God wanted in this text. He wanted us to see 
the extreme devotion of his son from the very beginning, even as a young boy. And this gives us hope and it gives us an example to follow, especially you children. Consider the example of Christ, you young people. God wants you to be devoted to him like Jesus was devoted to him. God wants you to love to come to church and to worship him like Jesus loved to attend his father's house. God wants you to obey your parents just like Jesus obeyed his mother and his stepdad, Joseph. God wants you to get more and more wise as you grow up. And he wants you to behave well so that people will look at you and say, that is a good and a godly boy or girl and thus give glory to God. And God wants you to live to please him and to obey him so that he can pour more and more favor upon you as you grow older. But here's what it all comes down to in the end. Christ committed to his Father. And his commitment assures that the Father will be committed to us who have committed to Christ. Because those of us who have committed to Christ do so because God first committed unto us. What do the scriptures say? We love him because what? Because he first loved us. And nowhere, nowhere do we see this commitment of Christ more magnificently displayed than on the journey from Jerusalem to the cross. Consider Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 31. Jesus, knowing that his time was at hand, had resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 31, we see that on that very day, some Pharisees came to him, saying, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Here is a man on a mission. Here is a man massively devoted to a cause. Here is a man that you can follow through hell and back. Here is a man who set his face and walked straight into the fiery furnace of hell for the glory of his Father and to redeem his people. And there, then, we stand on a hillside and we look up at a cross. And there we see our Jesus on that cross. But for us, who have been transformed by the power of this Savior, this picture is not disgusting. It is not disturbing. It is not a gut-wrenching scene. This is glory. It is glory because we see that there 
on the cross on that day the most magnificent display of the attributes of God that the world had ever seen was taking place and being played out. Just consider God's mercy, His love, His grace, His power, His knowledge, His truth, His wisdom, His immutability, His justice were all put on display that glorious day. Consider God's mercy. The fact that God didn't blast into hell those who dared to lift a finger upon His Son. Consider the fact that God did not absolutely blow this world into smithereens when people dared to ridicule His Son and spit upon His Son and beat His Son. Consider His mercy and consider the words of Christ from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Consider God's love at the cross. God gave His beloved Son to make perverse rebels privileged citizens in the kingdom of heaven. As the song says, depth of mercy can there be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God, His wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? And the answer is yes. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Consider God's grace. No one redeemed by the work of the cross has earned that blessing. God has freely bestowed grace on worthless sinners. And consider your own depravity and even the depravity of your deepest, darkest, most secret thoughts and then realize that we stand naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. But yet, yet, if you are in Christ Jesus, His grace has poured out upon you and He loves you beyond measure. Consider God's power at the cross. We thought about this a little bit. God controlled all of creation so that every detail came to a head at exactly the right time so that all of these prophecies would be fulfilled. And then, I believe, God displayed His power both in restraint and in wrath at the cross. In restraint that He was able to hold back when wicked people persecuted His Son. And then His power of wrath as He poured his wrath out in a torrent upon his son and his son absorbed all of that wrath so that we could be saved. Consider God's knowledge. This plan of redemption that we're talking about, could any mere man conceive of this plan of redemption? Could any man think of such a glorious journey? plotted out and perfectly executed in such a way? Oh, no. What less than omniscience could have perfectly planned every step? Thousands of years before, prophets had spoken and every detail perfectly carried out. God's truthfulness at the cross. God has spoken and He made every word good. God's wisdom. God knew that there was no other plan. Do you realize this? No other plan that could have brought more glory to himself than the plan of redemption and Christ hanging on that cross. Wayne Grudem says this, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and always the best means to those goals. 
the best goal for God ultimately is His own glory. And then secondarily, the saving of His people. And the best means to accomplish that goal was the journey from eternity to the throne. God's immutability, His character, unswervingly demands justice. So His sinless Son had to die on that cross if anyone was to be saved. And there at the cross we see justice and mercy kiss at the cross. The justice of God. He had to play by the rules. He couldn't just save people without a substitute. So he gave his own son. Sinless, perfect. And he paid the debt that we could not pay so that we could inherit the glory the glory that we could not afford. What a glorious display of the attributes of God at the cross in that stage of the journey. But that wasn't it either. That wasn't the end. Because there had to be the crowning of the king. After Christ drank to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God, God's justice was satisfied. And Christ was then ushered into glory. What did he tell the thief on the cross? This day you will be with me in paradise in glory. Then, on the third day... Jesus burst from that grave. Then he revealed himself to his disciples. Then he ascended into glory in bodily form. And there he sits today at the right hand of the Father, ruling in power and glory over his kingdom. And my friends, Christ rules now. Christ is crowned now. Christ is glorified now. Christ is our King right now. So crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. Now hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake our souls and sing of Him who died for us and praise Him as our matchless King through all eternity. But there's another stage. Yes, he's already crowned, but there is the not yet. There is that day coming when every knee shall bow of things in earth and things under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as that day ushers in, will split the sky. There will be the shout of the archangel. There will be the blast of the beautiful trumpet. And Christ will descend and will judge this earth. He will right all the wrongs. He will reward the righteous. He will damn to hell all of the wicked and his enemies and the enemies of his people. And then he will restore the entire creation to pristine perfection. And we will live on with him for all eternity. This is our ultimate hope as we journey. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, 
then shall we also appear with him in glory. His journey to glory assures our journey to glory. And so away, away with the existential rot that says it's all about the journey and nothing about the destination. Away with such rot. It was not the case for our Lord Jesus Christ. What did the scripture say? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. We too should follow in that example. When the times are hard and our journeys are dragging us downward, what do we do? We look to the joy that is set before us. We look to the fact that our pioneer, our forerunner, our captain has gone forth into glory before us and he has made the way open so that we can enter in. We are called to glory and to journey as Christ did for the glory of God and for the joy of our very souls. So, his journey makes our journey possible. His victories are our victories if we are in Him and if we are His. And He is ours. My friends, God has brought us all to this place. Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church on this day, Christmas 2011. Look back for just a moment. Are you thankful for the journey of the last year and where the Lord has led you and what He has brought you through? Now, look at where you are on your journey and consider where you need to be in the future. Where are you on your journey? Some of you, perhaps, are standing still on your journey, frozen in place on the path of righteousness. Some of you may have something that you know that God has commanded you to do. But you are frozen in place and you're not doing what God has told you you must do. It has been said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with but a single step. What God requires of you is to take that first step. And then to take the next step. And the next step. And to keep Stepping into the footsteps of Christ who went on before you. Some of you perhaps are running headlong down the path. Heedless of people around you and their needs. Heedless of wisdom and caution and discretion. Pray unto God for wisdom and for the gentleness of Christ. Some of you perhaps are shuffling down the path 
with your head bent downward and all you can see are the toils and the troubles of the path. Look up to glory. Take your eyes off of the circumstances around you and look to glory. There is Christ. He has entered in. Look to glory. Maybe some of you are meandering down the path. Rapidly, unreflectively walking through this life. Pray for the focus of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for the ability to ponder deeply the things of God and to be committed to Christ and His work. Maybe some of you right now have strayed off of the path. Let me tell you this, first of all, following in Christ's footsteps is far easier than trying to blaze your own trail. Proverbs say that the way of the transgressor is hard. And realize this as well, if you are Christ, if you are a true believer, God may grab you, shake you, and slam you back down on the path. If you are apostatizing, if you are abandoning the faith and you have left the path because you are abandoning the faith, realize this, you may reach a point where you will not be able to be restored to repentance. Hebrews chapter 6. So call upon God while he may be found. Repent. Have a change of mind that leads to a change of life regarding where you need to be in Christ Jesus. And know that if you are able to do this, rightly and righteously, God will not turn you away. Maybe some of you need to get on the path to begin with. Maybe you've never even been there. Maybe you're not a Christian today at all. Maybe you have no interest in what I'm saying to you today at all. Look to Christ and call out to Him for mercy. Look to Him and believe in Him and rest in Him to give you the ability to journey in a way that is pleasing unto God. Don't try and undergo this journey in your own strength. You will fail, miserably fail and your destination will be to walk right into the fire of hell. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. Cry out to Him for mercy. We're going to partake of the Lord's table here together today. And I've called us to examine where we are in our journey. But ultimately, I want us to focus on this. What God desires of us and what our greatest joy comes in is exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His work that has made it possible for us to complete our journeys. That's what it comes down to. What are we saved by? By grace, through what? Through faith. Not of ourselves. The gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. And so to 
show us and remind us of where our hope lies. We have examined Christ's journey today. And every morning of our journeys, we need to remind ourselves of Christ's journey. We need to remind ourselves that Christ stands hand outstretched to us with mercies that are new every morning. So as we reach out our hands and as we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, we need to know that there Christ stands hand outstretched pouring out mercy upon those who are His. And He offers us this mercy that is new every morning. Michael Card has written a song called There is a Joy in the Journey. There is a joy in the journey. There is a light we can love on the way. There is a wonder and wildness to life and freedom for those who obey. And all those who seek it shall find it. A pardon for all who believe. Hope for the hopeless and sight for the blind. To all who have been born in the Spirit and who share incarnation with Christ, who belong to eternity, stranded in time and weary of struggling with sin. Forget not the hope that's before you and never stop counting the cost. Remember the hopelessness when you were lost? There is a joy in the journey. There is a light we can love on the way. There is a wonder and wildness to life and freedom for those who obey. Brother Dan and Brother Pat, would you come help with the Lord's Supper today? Today we remember Christ's journey. We consider that he was born there in that manger. And then with this bread and with this cup we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. His broken body and his blood that was shed for us. And we're to do this if we are his with joy. We're commanded to do this in remembrance of him. But this is our privilege. It's our privilege. So let me encourage you. Whereas we must always examine ourselves, don't get lost in yourself right now. Come out of yourself and see Christ. Because it's not about us, it's about Him. And it's about what He has done on our behalf. Brother Pat, would you ask a blessing on the bread today? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the the joy and the privilege to be here together, Lord. And we bless this bread which represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us, Father. Pray that at this time, Lord, of uh, fellowship, 
believe us, our community more the community that we have in Christ. And, and it's time to remember that uh, what we will see is a joyful, a victorious reward of uh, conquering death and sin. Lord, I pray that uh, you may bless this prayer. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Shoes, and like a root out of parched ground. 
He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. For he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our grief is, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. That we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Father, I thank you for the message that we heard today. Father, I thank you that the message came from your word, presented, Father, in truth. Father, I pray that your sovereignty shines through from this message today, that the, the prophecy read is, was, was written 700 years before the birth of Christ that your glory is brought forth. Father, that this is a time of self-evaluation, but more so, Father, it's a time of remembering you, for truly you are all in all. Your grace is truly amazing. Father, this day may we see and appreciate and worship you in truth and in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
This cup represents to us the blood of Jesus Christ. Which blood represents his life that he poured out for all those who will believe upon him. Let us do this in remembrance of him. Let's all stand together. As is our custom, let's sing the first verse of Amazing Grace a cappella together. in ourselves and what we have accomplished but humble in your sight and boasting in the cross of Christ. May we boast in naught but the cross and the work that you've accomplished through that and your mighty works throughout history. I pray, Father, that you'll go with us today and the rest of the day that we spend with family and with friends that we will be focused on Christ today that we will remember what this season is all about that we will not bow to the gods of materialism but at the same time that we will rejoice in your provision for us you who have given us all things richly to enjoy for there is joy in this world, joy to the world the Lord has come. So help us to receive our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a delight in the fact that He is crowned today. And we give Him honor and glory, and we pray in His name. Amen. Amen.